1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. First first thing is, I, I need to see the t-shirt. It's got all these, like, ducks, <laughs> and then there's some white ones on yeah, it. What? Duck, duck, goose. Okay, okay. That's awesome. It, it's from Black Hair. They're a small studio that... They were in New Brunswick. Now they're in Ontario. Okay. And what do they do? Uh, it's all hand-designed T-shirts and uh, kids' clothes. And yeah, but I buy the T-shirts. Yeah, they have really nice designs. Who's who's that um, hunter chef from down in the States? His name just slipped slip me. He's, he... Uh, yeah, Hank Shaw. Yeah, Hank Shaw. That's, that's it. So he's, yeah. he's got a... I think he's got a cookbook called... Yeah. Is it Duck, Duck, Goose or... Like yeah, there's buck, buck, moose, That's there's right. duck, duck, goose, <laughs> That's and right. then there's rabbit, hare, and cottontail, I think, or something like oh, that. that. We have all of them. <laughs> oh, do you? Okay. No, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> a, a, a person can like go overboard collecting cookbooks, right? Like they're just so, so many cool game cookbooks out there and stuff. And then, and then you're, you know, you got all these books and then you're like, then you're like, ah, oh, geez, what am I going to do for supper? It's like, well, I'll make spaghetti. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah well we do we do use the cookbooks a fair amount I don't actually cook my spouse he does all the cooking um so we like I like having the cookbooks because then I can pick something out then I give it to him and he he does the cooking right right no I'm I, it's the opposite in our house I do the wild game cooking so it's like I have to nice. I have to do all that unfortunately what I do is I go through those cookbooks and I'm like oh this one looks so great and then I get home at like <clears throat> seven o'clock and then you're like Oh, this is like two hours to prepare this yeah. meal. So it's like, well, let's just have spaghetti. So yeah, no, that's so you just get to pick it out and say you just you deliver on that. Use yeah, I mean, I I help. I mean, I do all of the hunting, all of the butchering. Get I prepare it for like to get it into the recipe, <laughs> um, and then he does the actual cooking. Um, although I help if it's if uh, it's not too busy with you know. Sometimes I'll train dogs because I have hunting dogs. So sometimes I'll train the dogs while he's cooking or, or something like that. But we, I do help him with cooking when 
when occasionally at least, <laughs> especially with game recipes or big recipes, we do a lot of cooking where we make big recipes and then um, either freeze it or eat it for the whole week. So a couple hours of cooking isn't too bad for us because then we don't have to cook the rest of the week. That's nice. I, I like I'd like to get there with that to be able to to get <laughs> to get ahead on on dinners. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So folks, this is uh, Dr. Jessica Haynes. You are an assistant professor at McEwen University in Edmonton, Alberta. Yes. Yeah. And so you are, uh, by background, uh, an ecologist. Is that is that correct? Yep. Yeah, that's correct. I'm an ecologist. I do research and teaching focusing on animal behavior, um, conservation biology, and ecology and evolution. Oh, wow. And, and I saw in your university bio that red squirrels is one of the um, surrogates or analogs that you use to study evolution. So that is super cool. Yeah, my PhD research was focused on red squirrels. Um, I really enjoyed working with them. They're very quirky uh, animals. Um, so I went to the project to because I was interested in the questions I could ask um, about ecology and evolution. And then turned out that red squirrels are just really fun animals. So I really enjoyed that work. Now I'm working on Franklin's ground squirrels in Alberta. That's my current main research focused. Um, focus. They're they're probably an endangered species, um, but we don't actually have enough information on them yet to actually call them an endangered species. So that's where me and my collaborator collaborators come in. We're essentially trying to collect enough data through my own data collection with my research uh, students, as well as using citizen science to actually say whether it's an endangered species. Wow, wow, that's. Uh... That's a big, that's a big task. Uh, Franklin ground squirrel. So now when we're talking ground squirrels, are we talking like grassland prairie ground squirrels, like the Columbia, or are we talking more like a submontane alpine? They, um, they're interesting. So yeah, a lot of people, when I say I'm working with ground squirrels, they think I mean what we call gophers yeah, here in Alberta, know, yeah. which, <laughs> which are the ones that are the pests. Um, so that's not what I'm working for. They're with, they're doing fine. They're, they're not in trouble. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Franklin's ground squirrels look something like the mountain Colombian ground squirrels, but they have a bit longer fluffy tail and the Colombian um, ground squirrels have a reddish face and some other red on their body. Um, whereas the Franklin's ground squirrel have like a gray face, gray tail, um, very different color pattern mm. with more of a brownish back. Um, they're in central Alberta and other provinces. They're in, um, they're in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and then they're also in some of the states. Um, in some provinces and states, they're doing well. And in some uh, provinces and states, they're in decline and Alberta looks like it's unfortunately one of the places where they're in decline. So they like parkland habitat. So they like like central Alberta um, where it's forested, but there's a lot of kind of variation on the landscape, lots of shrubs. They really like that dense shrubs. 
but in uh, provincial parks, they'll also come out into the open to feed on things like dandelions. So they have adapted to human presence in some places, but they're just overall not doing very well. Mm. So it kind of sounds like they would overlap, like where mule deer would like to hang out. Parkland yeah, habitat. probably. Yeah, kind of. Yep. Yeah, okay. And, and whitetail and rough grouse um, as well. Um, so I'm interested in helping this species, but I'm also interested in thinking about, you know, is the parkland habitat itself um, maybe having some issues as well and that is important for a lot of game species i do a lot of bird hunting for rough grouse um, i hunt uh, white-tailed deer and parkland habitats um, so there are lots of game species that also are in those areas so i think addressing this kind of question with a species that is more sensitive to the habitat changes could also benefit other species like game species huh cool I love, I love that. Love that stuff. A couple, a couple years ago on our other podcast, the Hunter Conservationist podcast, we had Andrea Wishart on who's working on her PhD uh, on red squirrels up in the Kalani region uh, in the Yukon. And that was just absolutely fascinating. We loved it. I don't know. You have to go back and check, check it out. Um, you've probably seen her, her name and stuff kind of in the scientific circles. If you're studying ground squirrels and red squirrels and stuff. So that's, uh, it, it was, it was a great, yeah. great thing to learn about. Now you I'll have to look back at that. Um, we are actually collaborators. <laughs> oh, are you? Okay. Yeah. 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 Check, check it out. I can send you, I can send you the link to, to her, uh, her episode. So that was, that was super fun. Now you're a hunter as well, which is yes. super cool. Um, this is kind of some of the, the layers of the complexity of, of who you are. I, I want to peel back now. Being an ecologist, that's my background as well, uh, ecology. And when, when, when I first came across your Instagram page and I'm looking at, you know, your pictures, like I'm out in the woods, <clears throat> you know, doing a bit of hunting, got the dogs out, grouse, whatever. It's like, I, I related to how you hunt and how you see and experience nature when you're out there, because it, it dawned on me, you're seeing, you're experiencing hunting as an ecologist the same way I am. And, and your pictures, your feed reflected that because you're like, yes, I'm hunting, but it's like, oh, here's some tracks in the snow of uh, a rabbit. Um, here's some Saskatoons like fully ripe on the branches. And, and you're like, oh, this is like, this thing's cool and that's cool. And it's like, I'm like, that's how I see when I'm out there too. It's like, <laughs> I stop and smell the roses, all these, these little things. And, uh, I was so excited to kind of like see someone else, uh, you know, that sees their world out there. And does that, does that add to your hunting experience for you? Like, you know, the focus is always like, what did you get? You know, did you get a deer? Did you get a big buck? Uh, did you get your bag limit of gross? But how does that matter to you? And how does like seeing all that small stuff that excites you as an ecologist make your experience when you're hunting? Yeah. So it's, it's all connected. Um, I still remember one of my first technician jobs that was in wildlife biology was with a professor who's retired now. His name's uh, Dr. Dan Kepi. Um, and we were working in forestry plantations trying to understand what species of birds were using them. 
And I remember we were just walking between sites and he was like, oh, what was that bird? I said, I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention. He's like, never stop listening. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a really good lesson. And so in my career, I just learned to really pay attention to what was around me and to notice all those little things. Because sometimes you learn a lot um, from just checking out what animals are, are moving through by looking for tracks or looking for what vegetation is around. Um, And then when I started hunting, which I've been hunting just under 10 years now, um, yeah, it was very natural for me to just apply that to my hunting. So I I just pay attention to what's around me. Um, I do look for the species that I'm targeting that day, but it's also just really fun to see what what else is out there, to see tracks, to see sign. Um, I don't currently have any trail cameras, so I do a lot of my scouting just by tracking, by being out there, um, by looking for, for game sign, for actually looking for, looking for game. Um, and a lot of that comes from my upbringing as someone who just spent a lot of time outside and my job where I've just always had to look for wildlife. And it really changes how you look at the world when you just spend a lot of time outside, spend a lot of time looking for species, whether that's as an ecologist or as a hunter, if you're really paying attention suddenly you see so much more in the world um, when you're paying attention. And it really does make that hunting experience much more rewarding because when it boils down to just, did I get something or not? There's lots of days where you get nothing (laughs) and it makes hunting not so fun if that's all you focus on. But for me, it's the experience of being out in nature, um, getting out with friends, getting out with my dogs um, who are my hunting dogs Um, and just being out there and experiencing everything that I can. Mm. And then it's a bonus if I get something. I mean, I do want meat in the freezer because we eat a lot of game and we primarily eat protein from what I've hunted. Um, But it's still also about that experience and being out. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not like a utility job where you just got to like go out, er, there's that, put it in the truck, okay, let's go home and, you know, fix the barn, <laughs> you know, like, it's like, no, there's like more to life, uh, while I'm out there as well. I, I, I totally understand that. Do you, do you see, do you think you have an advantage, like as an ecologist being like holistically aware of everything that's going on out there? Does, do you find in any way, shape or form, like, um, something like, uh, you know, say, let's say chickadee activity, uh, it's, it's minus 15 in the morning then it, it's dead quiet in the woods. You're looking for a whitetail. And then the sun comes out and all of a sudden you notice, hey, the chickadees have just lit up and they're just like, the trees are alive. Like, do you see any correlation between things like that? And then all of a sudden, hey, deer starting to move. And like, do you, do you pick up on those little nuances and, and be like, hey, chickadees can, activity can kind of tell me that the bucks might be moving or, or anything like that. What, what have you seen? Um, I don't know about chickadees, but yeah, definitely lots of, it's really encouraged me to look for connections on the landscape. You know, I work with Franklin's ground squirrels, as I mentioned earlier. And one thing that I've really started to notice are, uh, like food plants. Um, because I actually think that might be something that's important for them. But then when I was out hunting this fall, I started noticing that, oh, those same food plants, like plants that produce berries 
that I've started to kind of hone in on because of my concerns about habitat fragmentation in parklands and how it's affecting Franklin's ground squirrel. This is also where I'm finding the rough grouse, especially in the fall before the snow. Well, this year we don't have any snow, but before the snow hits normally, (laughs) um, I was finding grouse in all these places that had these food plants that had tons of berries. And so they weren't, they were often on edges in a lot of these places because they were looking for berries that were along the edges or they were hanging out in like dense shrubs because they were, they were eating the berries. And I knew they were eating the berries because I checked the crops when I, when I harvest them. Um, so it was really interesting to think about those connections on the landscape. I, I often think about habitat and how that's influencing the species that I'm seeing. And then I also think about populations as well. Like this year, I've noticed um, in the places that I hunt, I'm sure there's some variation, but in the places I hunt, there's not a lot of um, family groups of grouse. And I know that ruffed grouse, are their chicks are pretty sensitive to rain in the spring. And I'm wondering if we had um, a wet spring right at the wrong time for the chicks, because although I'm still finding adults, I'm not finding a lot of family groups. But I know all that because of my background as an ecologist and thinking about those connections in the ecosystems and thinking about population of different species and how um, how it's connected to their resources. So it definitely influences my my hunting. And I always when I'm talking to other hunters, like some find this kind of conversation really interesting and some are like, I don't care. I just want to find birds. I know, I know exactly. <laughs> you can see you their mean. eyes kind of glaze over. It's like, I'm sorry, I'm a biologist. I think about these things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's a, that, those are exactly, you know, my same my same experiences. And sometimes I kind of think, I wonder if we have a if we have a bit of an unfair advantage, you know, with an ecology background, because like you said, it's like you focus on you know, food plants and there's the berry crop and they're doing this, but they're growing in certain microsites and under certain canopies of other. And then, so you look across the valley and I went, I bet you I, I could go over there to the toe of that slope, just around the corner in the draw, find the same plant community. And I should be able to find rough growths there. And, and I, maybe it doesn't, doesn't always work because I don't have the most successful days, but I, I feel like that's, I feel like that's how hunters should be. Like we're the ones that should be the ecologists that can go and go, that's that plant. That's that plant. This is this, this is the timing. This is when this goes to seed, they feed this, but come midwinter, they'll switch and feed on this. And it's like, everybody should have that level of knowledge that's hunting. Well, if you look at the old research papers on a lot of game species, they were both ecologists and hunters. Um, mm. A lot of these species were studied originally by people that were hunting in them and were not having success or were having success. And we're like, I got to figure out why I'm not getting birds in these areas. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of foundations in in um, ecology that are based on people that were hunting and their experiences with their game species. A lot of the I the person that I worked with in my undergraduate worked with rough grouse. Um, and spruce grouse. So I read a lot of those earlier papers at that time because I found them really interesting. And yeah, it was all about it was all about people who were hunting them who were trying to find them <laughs> and and make the populations better so you could have more hunting. I think a lot of people now don't realize that there are those connections between conservation and hunt and hunters. I think in hunting we see those connections. Like a lot of hunters see themselves as being connected to to conservation in some way. Mm-hmm. But outside of hunters, 
I think there's not as much general knowledge that there is that connection between hunting and conservation. But those two fields, you know, the, the hobby of hunting and or subsistence hunting, that's always been connected strongly with conservation and game management. Yeah, yeah. And and that that knowledge, like we were talking about, that hunters hold in those connections and trappers are the same way. You know, I always said, yeah. if you want to know anything about the demographics or the population trends of fur bears, there isn't anybody on the landscape that doesn't know more than trappers and the older they are, the longer that and deeper that knowledge is. And, and, um, yeah, I, I think we're moving away from recognizing that, you know, that too, the, the value of that on the landscape. Now, do you, do you incorporate this as a hunter and your and the, and the lens that you see the landscape uh, through as a hunter ecologist? Do you bring that into the classroom? Like, do you weave that into your courses? And and if you do, how how do your students respond to that? Like, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so. I teach a third year conservation biology class and a fourth year advanced conservation biology class. So I talk about it some in my third year class, but it definitely comes up a lot in my fourth year class because we talk a lot about, um, so there's different modules essentially in that class. And one is about indigenous peoples and conservation and how our current conservation system was set up based on European values, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and Indigenous peoples, they've long had conservation and management as a part of how they've in integrated and interacted with the land. Because all you have to do is look at early records of settlers coming to North America, and they were talking about, oh, there's so many fish, there's so many birds, there's so many uh, deer. And when I was growing up, that was told as a story of, look at this unpeopled land that Europeans arrived to. But in reality, that was a land that was managed very actively by Indigenous peoples. So we talk about that in my class. And then we also talk about hunting and management. And I use it as an example of how do you manage a landscape and manage animal populations when there are multiple stakeholders who have different values. And um, I use um, hunting and how it's managed in Alberta as an example. So I always tell them at some point in there just for full... Um, full recognition of my biases and values that I'm a hunter. Um, and I've had a lot of students who are really interested in that. I find, you know, most of my colleagues don't hunt. Most of my students don't hunt. Um, but everyone's really interested in learning more about it. And I think it's because I, I really talk about the broader, you know, values that I get, the broader things that I get from my hunting experience so I do post pictures of the animals that I kill on Instagram, especially on my dog's Instagram account. Um, but I often talk more about, you know, what happened when we got that animal or the story that went into harvesting that deer or um, we didn't get anything, but the dogs and I had a good experience today. And I bring that to my classroom as well. I don't just talk about, oh, we're just shooting things. We're just killing things. It's about hunting in you know, as a way of getting food, as a way of experiencing the environment, and that it can be very well managed um, successfully on the landscape. And then, oh, look, there's all this other, you know, historical context and cultural context and 
Um, and I talk about all of that. And I think in that context, a lot of people find the conversation really interesting and they see the stories behind it and not just, you know, me shooting a, a deer for my, yeah, and, for my freezer and high-fiving or whatever. Yeah, no, I, um, yeah, that, that is a really interesting observation, you know, like, so you said most of your students and most of your colleagues don't hunt, but there's a curiosity and genuine questions and like a, a sort of an interest in understanding this, this world that's part of, part of your life. And that is so refreshing to hear that because everybody thinks it's like either you're a hunter or everybody else out there just thinks we're trophy hunters and they want to sign a petition to, to ban hunting. But it's like, I don't think so. I think, you know, what you're experiencing is more the, probably the reality of the cross-section of people out there is there's a, there's an interest. And when they see somebody that they know and they respect their values and their beliefs as a hunter, I think that does more, you know, for the future of hunting in this country, I think, than, than anything. And, and, um, you know, it's people, people like you that are like, oh, I, I know her and she's a hunter. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's Jessa is, she's not like that at all. You got it all wrong. And, and that's, that's probably a wonderful thing that, you know, you probably don't know that that happens, but yeah, I think it's really easy if you see opinions in social media and news and all that. There's a lot of, there certainly are anti-hunters out there. And some of them are very ignorant and or very vocal and or pretty mean. Um, but I think if you actually talk to people or if you get the chance to talk to lots of different people, I think there's a lot more curiosity about it more broadly and or acceptance um, or neutrality. <laughs> um, and that's certainly been my experience. Um, it's, it actually didn't come natural to me to talk about all of my, you know, my feelings and my experience on, on the land. That's always been something that felt very personal, but it just, uh, I just recognized that it was something that if I was going to share my hunting experiences that I really needed to also share everything else that I was experiencing as a part of that. Um, because otherwise, the only impression that people who don't hunt, the only impression they get is that I'm just killing things. And that's, you know, I'm just a bloodthirsty person or something. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, by stepping out of my comfort zone and starting to share those stories, I've, I found it much more rewarding. And I actually um, was involved in a student focused hunting mentorship program this year. So the Alberta chapter of the Wildlife Society ran a hunting mentorship program where they helped students get um, all of the certifications that they needed to be able to hunt. Um, so making sure they got hunter's education and um, some students got opportunities to go to the range to practice shooting. Um, and then some of the students went out with professional guides to learn about um, waterfowl shooting. And uh, some went out with upland hunters with a couple hunt upland hunting organizations to do upland hunting. And then I took them out um, uh, duck hunting with my dogs for uh, one morning and then took them out grouse hunting another day um, with my dogs. And it was really, it was really fun. Um, it was really fun to be a part of that. It was really rewarding because, you know, for a student getting even a duck, like with the cost of living these days, that's a big deal for them to have that protein in their freezer. 
Um, but also I was just so impressed with how excited they were and how genuinely curious they were. And I was amazed at how many people wanted to participate in the project. So I think with so much focus on our food and thinking about eating locally and thinking about sustainability, I think a lot of young people are really drawn to hunting um, and really interested in participating. But a lot of us, like I, I have family that hunted, but I never hunted when I was a kid because my, my dad, my immediate family didn't hunt. Um, so it was a challenge getting into it. I had a lot of people who helped me and mentored me. And so now I'm trying to return the favor and mentor people as often as I can. But if you don't have that connection to family or to friends who hunt, it's really hard to get into it. Yeah, yeah. No, I can certainly, that's certainly a message, you know, we've heard clear across North America and, you know, on some of those barriers, um, you know, the, the leading one being like, I don't know what I'm doing and I can't find someone to, to take me. So, um, yeah, hat, hats off to you for, for dedicating part of your personal time to, to passing that on. I think that's an obligation, you know, every, every hunter should take like super seriously is, is, is becoming a mentor for sure. Um, so your, your students, I mean, the, like universities are so different now. Like if we would have went to your university, like in the seventies or the eighties, it probably would have been like a lot of farm kids that are from basically within like kilometers of the university. Right. And they're like, Oh yeah, no, we all hunted and I got, there's, I got a gun in my truck out in the parking lot kind of thing where nowadays Mm -hmm. it's like, you've probably got students possibly from all over the world. Uh, whether they've immigrated here, whether they're foreign students, maybe they've grown up in in um, uh, Toronto and they've, you know, picked a smaller university and uh, out, out west to go to. And it, does that, does that, are your students like that? And is that more of a challenge or more exciting when they're trying to learn about hunting? Yeah, I, um, I've, taught at different universities. I previously was at a larger one. And when I got my job here, I definitely noticed there were differences in the kinds of learners that we have here. They're much more diverse. The kinds of classes I used to teach in at other institutions, everybody looked like me. Now, when I go into a classroom here, um, there's so much diversity in the classroom. And you're right, there's international students, there's people from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, And I also find that there's a lot more people from the city. And so you're right that they, they don't come from those backgrounds that have farming or other outdoor activities um, that were just in, ingrained in how they grew up. Um, I mean, that's how I'm not from a farm. I'm from a, I'm technically from a city, but I'm from the East coast. So uh, even if you live in a city out East, it doesn't mean you're from like a very busy place. My parents had land and we did a lot of outdoor activities and, so for me, being an outdoor person just came naturally because it was kind of an extension of what I'd learned growing up. And so I definitely see challenges with my students, whether it's for hunting or even if it's for field work, a lot of them don't have as much experience um, outdoors. And that is really challenging if you don't even know what footwear or what clothing to wear to go outside. Um, it definitely takes a bit more I find I have to be a bit more mindful as a mentor to make sure that, you know, my students are taken care of. Um, or when I'm hiring, hiring research assistants, 
like to be aware of what their experience is so that I know what kind of training they might need. So I don't know about the the hunters and how it's affecting them, but I expect that it that it is because um, there's just less connection to the land. People are wanting to build that connection, but they just don't have it. So it's a lot harder to get into it, a lot more work. Yep. Yeah, all those all those nuances like, uh, no, white sneakers are not going to be useful for late season deer hunting with me today. And wow, your clothing is really, really noisy. I said dress warmly, but they're like, okay, we need to talk about uh, selecting clothing that's quiet in the bush. Like those things we take for granted, right? But uh, it, yeah. it can be... Uh, yeah, it takes quite a school skill set to to mentor someone that's that's like that. No, that's yeah, good for you though. I think also, I think also there's, it's easy for us to forget what it's like to be like eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Oh, and that's the only clothing you have. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I usually bring out if I have someone that's coming with me that I'm not really sure uh, what gear they have. I've gotten into the habit of like tossing my extra camo jacket in the back of my car or bringing that extra orange vest if we're doing upland because they don't, they don't know. I mean, first there's the different styles of hunting. It's like for, for deer, you can wear certain things that you can't wear for waterfowl, like waterfowl see orange from forever away. So you, you're going to scare them all off if you wear your orange vest that you're wearing for your upland hunt. So there's that complexity that you have to make sure they understand. But then it's also just that a lot of people don't have the right equipment if they're not actually doing outdoor stuff. So it also takes a bit more planning to make sure that we can properly equip them. So I was lucky the mentorship program did have some stuff that they um, that they're able to contribute. Um, but then I would just bring stuff when I went out to like, okay, we'll probably need this camo equipment because they probably won't have this yeah, or, or rain, oh, rain jacket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just whatever I have, I'm going to toss it in the car. Or they can use it if they need it. <laughs> oh, that's, that's cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's also the skills of a good guide, right? It's just sort of like, yeah, I would probably say someone's going to forget their rain jacket and I'd rather pack an extra one. Uh, in my pack rather than have to call a helicopter because I got a hypothermic student <laughs> with me on this field trip or hunting trip yeah. or whatever. Oh, that's, that's super exciting um, that, that you're involved in that. So how, how do your, how do your colleagues like interact with you? You know, if you're a hunter and do you talk about that in the coffee room and stuff? Like, are they, you said they were they were curious, but are they curious the same way your students are? Like, do you take a coworker say, yeah. "Hey, why don't you come with me and see what gross hunting's like?" Yeah. So this fall, only two of the hunts that I took people on were with the program that was focused on students. The rest of my mentored hunts was getting friends and colleagues out. So I have colleagues that are interested in hunting. Um, either in doing it themselves or just seeing what it's about. So I took them out. I have some friends that got me into deer hunting that now I'm getting them into bird hunting because um, I have the dogs and they don't. So uh, there's been a lot of kind of uh, t helping teach each other <laughs> things about hunting. So that's been, yeah, really rewarding. It, it's, I think, because I share so much about, I mean, it, basically all I do in the fall is train my dogs and hunt. And then the rest of the year, I spend most of it training my hunting dogs, either for hunting or for sports, because we do dog sports. 
So it's kind of what I always just talk about. So um, they're either very tolerant or very interested. It varies, <laughs> but most of them are very interested. So yeah, it's been it's been fun to to get them out with me and to see that connection. I also try to share, um, like if we cook a meal, uh, we'll invite people over and share game meat with them uh, that way. And I think that helps too because. A lot of people are interested in game, but they don't really know how to prepare it. So they don't want to hunt it themselves if they don't know how to cook it. Um, and that's actually how I started getting into hunting. I helped actually on the butchering side first with my friends who gut deer um, and learned about the food side of it and then started hunting. And so now I try to talk about that side of it as well. Although I don't do the actual cooking. My spouse does all the cooking in our house. He's the He's a much better cook than I am. It would be bad if I was the one that was in charge of cooking. Um, but yeah, we often invite people over and then it's almost always game meat because that's what we have in our freezer. Yeah. No, that 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 is a great way to introduce it because, you know, th- then you work people backwards, right? Like they, I mean, I, th- I think one of the, the easiest ways to get turned off of hunting is to have a bad experience of some wild meat that was prepared, you know, incorrectly and, You've probably heard this from friends and family. It's like, oh yeah, ducks aren't they? Aren't they like greasy and oily? And it's like, oh no. And it's like, well, isn't isn't deer meat like dry? And you're like, no. <laughs> it's like, it's there's if there's if you had a bad experience with any wild game meat, it's like I always say, it's two things: either it was handled improperly in the field, or it was cooked in improperly. And yeah, what a great way to start off. People is is like introduce them, and they're like, wow, this is really good because you break down some huge barriers right there at the dinner table about hunting. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is actually really good. And then opens minds that way. So how good for you. Food is, food is such a good way to connect Mm -hmm. people. You know, whether you're sharing meals together or whether you're just sharing like your jerky that you're bringing out on a walk, like it's, it's such a great way to connect um, with people. Absolutely. It is. Uh, This, this was, this is a great conversation. It's, it's, it's so cool to hear, you know, from somebody that's uh, as an academic and a scientist and also a hunter and interacting, you know, with students. That's, that's exciting. It's, it's encouraging, you know, to see that we have hunters in our post-secondary institutions. Cause that um, I think probably like a lot of things, you know, in hunting, the proportion of, academics that research wildlife that were hunters say in the 60s and 70s to today is probably much much less so um Mm -hmm. we're rooting for you to stay in there for the (laughs) for the long term um keep keep hunting in uh, post-secondary education now before we were setting up this show we were kind of like when we were chit-chatting on social media and and by email and stuff you kind of were mentioning that you were thinking about you know, like closing down your Instagram page and, and, uh, you know, the, when I opened the conversation off about how, how much I loved your Instagram page, because you were seeing hunting as an ecologist, like that really resonated, uh, with me. And I, you know, we always hear hunters talking about like, it's the experience of going out, it's being in nature, it's connecting with nature. Um, that, you know, these are the important parts of hunting. It's not, you know, it's not killing something, but then the imagery is always about 
you know, the end result and not the journey or not the connection part. And your, your pictures, your stories, I saw the connection part and I felt that. And, and I think if I were to encourage you, I would say the hunting community needs that. It needs people like you that are saying, here's our day uh, outing. Look what the dogs did. It, you know, he found a stick and rolled in a, you know, in a dead muskrat and ha ha. And, you know, and, you know, here's some, here's this bird and there's that mushroom and, you know, the fall leaves are changing and stuff. And because that, that's why everybody's out there, but they can't articulate it. And, and I saw that you can articulate that and you can show people. And I think, you know, there's a lot of hunters that I think that would, if they started following you would be like, yeah, that's, she's, she sees and, you know, experiences and shows pictures that, you know, that, that resonate with me. And so some, some food for thought, I think I loved, I loved your page. <laughs> I love following you and seeing those things because it's like, it's like, that's the true heart of a hunter. It's just having a good time yeah. in the outdoors and with your dog and seeing all these little things in nature and yeah, so I wasn't planning on making that go away. I just think I'm going to merge my my personal and my dog account, so it's all on the same. No, one. <laughs> that's that's cool too. Um, I just, uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't want you to lose that lens as the hunter ecologist and mm -hmm. having people see that that this is a true hunter. This is the hunter's heart that's seeing so much more mm -hmm. out there on the landscape. And when we talk about hunters being connected to the land. Jessica shows how a hunter is connected <laughs> to the land. So, um, no, that'll be cool. Thank you. And, and maybe a few more fun pictures of how the dog's connected to the land and going like, gee, yeah. gee, the boss is tired already. I can go for another four hours. Like, what are you sitting down for? Get up. <laughs> uh, they keep me active. I, uh, they, uh, that's why I like having them even, even on the bad days when I'm really tired and don't feel like going out, as soon as we go out with them, they, they just bring oh, everything light up, up. So absolutely. Yeah. You got, yeah. you got no choice, but to, <laughs> to up your game that day when you take the dogs out. Oh. Yep. <laughs> Jess, thanks so much for joining me on this show and, and sharing your experiences as a scientist, as a professor and as a hunter. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome, folks. Dr. Jessica Haynes from Edmonton, Alberta. Thanks. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.